You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John 9, and we will read together the first three verses. Actually, we'll read together the first five verses of John 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come now to your word and the desire of our heart is that we might rightly behold your glory and your grace in the pages of Scripture. We pray that you would teach us truth, that you would help us to understand it. We want to to think rightly of you and your nature, your character, your purposes, your glory, your grace. And we desire, God, that you might show us these things today. Help our hearts to be conformed by the truth, we pray, that you would do that sanctifying and transforming work in us. And you would do this by your Spirit through the truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is amazing to me how much we who can see have to learn from a man who was born blind. And that's what we're doing sitting in John 9, learning some life lessons from a man who was born blind. There was a man who had never seen and had never read the Old Testament, and yet he becomes our teacher, or at least a fellow student, and we get to learn as we sit in and observe this conversation that is going on between Jesus and the disciples. And one of the very first lessons that we learn from the man born blind is that we cannot we cannot draw direct correlations between our suffering and sin. This was what the disciples did in the question in verse 2. They had assumed that all suffering, all anybody's suffering is the result of some personal sin. So that if there was a, if there was suffering going on, some affliction or infirmity, the Jews loved to draw that back to some sin and say, if this, then this. If this is true, if this person has done this deed, then this is the result of that. And so that was what was behind their assumption. And now we looked last week, it sort of set the stage and looked at that question that the disciples asked. And you remember we looked at what was behind their question, that is, that assumption, that was what was behind their question, the assumption that all sin is the, re- or all suffering is the result of some particular, specific, personal sin which results in that suffering. That was what was behind it. And then we asked, are there examples of that type of thinking or mentality in evangelicalism today? And there most certainly is. And a number of people came up afterwards last week and said, that is exactly how I thought for years. And I'll be honest with you, I did too. When I went to Bible college, it's not that I was taught that by the professors, but the, one of the dangers and drawbacks of a Bible college is that everybody from all kinds of different churches with all kinds of different baggage lands at the same campus all at the same time. And you end up spending more time with people in the dorms than you do with your professors in the classroom. And so it's kind of a petri dish of false doctrine. Everybody comes there and the hope is that by the time they get out of the petri dish of false doctrine, that a few of us have at least got our doctrinal fog lifted away. And so being exposed to all of these people who thought that way, that was just the language of evangelicalism. If somebody suffered something, it had to be a result of of their personal sin. 
And that's kind of the way that we are taught to think because we are immersed in this works righteous culture and we think almost intuitively that we do things to earn God's favor or we do things to put ourselves in God's disfavor. When in reality, we have the favor of God because of what Christ has done, not because of anything we have ever done or ever can do. And I can never fall out of God's favor. Why? Because I'm not in there by my own doings anyway. It is because of what Christ has done that I am there. I can never fall out of God's favor and into His disfavor because He is pleased with me because of Christ, not because of Jim. That's good news, right? And that, in fact, is the good news. That's what the Gospel is. That we are in God's favor because of what Christ has done. So that was the assumption behind what the disciples were thinking. And then I gave you five reasons why uh, why that is unbiblical or wrong thinking. Now just to review before we get to Jesus' answer in verse 3. Jesus coming out of the temple sees the, a man who is born blind. And this becomes a theological conundrum for the disciples given their assumptions. This, they're perplexed. How can this man be born in this condition? And they only can come up with two possible options. Either this man sinned at some point prior to his birth, which was an option because the rabbis believed you could sin in the womb. Either this man sinned in the womb before he was born, or more likely, his parents sinned. And because of his parents' sin, the calamity has come on this man. And this man then, and his situation, is in fact punishment to him for his parents' sin, and punishment for his parents. Because they have now had to live with a child who was born blind, with this handicap and this infirmity. And that is a difficulty in itself, and they have had to care for them. And now the man is a beggar. And so all of that would serve to be punishment for the parents for their sin. And now Jesus, in verse 3 sort of sets aside all of that and gives the answer to their question. But it's really not an answer to that question. It's actually an answer to the question that they didn't even ask because they were asking entirely the wrong question. Now let me ask you this. Is it, in light of what we talked about last week, is it always wrong to examine ourselves when we face suffering or affliction? That's not what I was saying. right? When I say to you that you should, we should not ask the question, what have I done to deserve this? Or is this a result of my sin? Or have I done something to earn this? Or why is God treating me this way? Or what is God trying to teach me? Or is God trying to get my attention? It's not that we should never ask those questions. Self-examination is always good, as long as it is healthy self-examination. So when affliction strikes, or infirmity strikes, or something tragic happens, you and I should always pause and say, is God disciplining me for something in my life? Is this the Lord trying to teach me something? He's always trying to teach us something, right? No suffering or affliction is wasted. And we should examine ourselves and say, Lord, what, what do you want to teach me through this? What am I to learn through this? What should, how should I respond to this that in a way that will honor and glorify you and magnify your grace? We should always ask those questions. But we err in thinking that every tragedy can be connected to some sin. Because what Jesus reveals in verse 3 is that that is not always the case. There are some times when God allows affliction and suffering for purposes that you and I cannot providentially explain or understand. That's just the reality of it. Not every bad thing that happens to us is because we have brought it on ourselves. It's not bad to examine ourselves, but we err in thinking that it is always the case that every bad thing is some sort of karmic reckoning. Karmic, is that a word? That is a word, right? It's some sort of reckoning of karma. That I've done something to deserve this. All right, verse 3, Jesus has answered. In verse 3, Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, when I introduced John 9, I told you the question that the disciples asked is as old as sin itself. Why do bad things happen? And have I done anything to deserve this? This is what Job wrestled with. This is what his friends argued about around Job. 
was, is there a connection between what happens to me in this life and some reckoning of God's justice? Is it that the righteous never suffer and the wicked always suffer? That question is as old as sin itself. The answer that Jesus gives is as big as God himself. And really there is a theology behind the answer in verse 3 that is enormous. It is enormous. And you and I will spend the rest of our lives plumbing the depths of verse 3 and the realities of it until we fully come to grasp that verse 3 is really about the sovereignty of God and the administration in His creation according to His providence and His good wisdom. That is what verse 3 is about. So let's look at Jesus' answer, and we begin with this. And here's what we want to do today. We want to do two things. First, we want to see how Jesus answers concerning this particular man and his particular situation. And then we want to back up and we want to say, okay, what is the theology behind his answer? And then we want to narrow it back down and say, how does this apply to me in my situation, my suffering, or my particular affliction? So we'll answer Jesus with the man in his situation. We'll look at verse 3, and then we'll back up and say, okay, what is the big idea behind this answer? And then we'll get more specific and look at just uh, our situation and how that theology applies to us. So verse 3, look how Jesus completely dismisses the whole premise of their question. Jesus says, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. And this is where you and I get the, get the understanding that they have entirely asked the wrong question. It's not that this man sinned, and it is not that this man's parents have sinned. Now, the disciples have asked, who sinned? They didn't ask if sin was ultimately the cause of bad things happening, which we would affirm what to that? We would say yes to that, right? Ultimately, bad things happen because sin is in this creation. We live in a sin-cursed, fallen world. But that's not what the disciples ask. They want to know who specifically is behind the sin. Now, if you saw a man born blind, and you believed that the reason he was born in that condition or that he was suffering blindness was because of some particular sin, what would you want to know? What sin brought the blindness? And you would avoid that like the plague, wouldn't you? Because you want to know if this man is committed... Some sin, idolatry, adultery, lust, what is it? If he has committed some sin that has brought this blindness, I want to know what that particular sin is so that I can avoid it. They're, they're thinking entirely wrongly. And so Jesus says, not that this man sinned, and it's not that this man's parents sinned. This man was born this way in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. And when Jesus says, neither this man sinned nor his parents, don't misunderstand what he's saying. Jesus is not denying that this man or his parents had sinned. You catch that? He's not denying that they were sinners. They were sinners. Everybody was a sinner, except for Jesus. So Jesus is not denying that they had sinned. Further, he's not denying that their sin, their individual sin, was worthy of eternal judgment. He is denying this, that this act of suffering can be tied to an individual sin. Now the premise of their question is that all suffering is tied to sin. But listen, all he has to, all, the, all that somebody has to do to show that not all suffering is tied to sin is to show that in any one particular case, suffering is not connected to sin. Let me put it this way. The only way that you and I can necessarily draw lines between suffering and sin is if it is always the case that those two are connected. But if it is not always the case that those two things are connected, then you and I can never presume to know what the connection is between suffering and sin, or even if there is a connection. So as Jesus slides all of their premises right off the table, and says it is not this man, it is not his parents, he is not, he is not denying that the parents have sinned. He is denying that 
him and the he and the parents have contributed anything or in any way caused this suffering. Second, Jesus is not denying that the sins of parents can ever affect physically a child. That's not what he's that's not what he's saying. We talked about this last week. It is possible for a, a woman who is pregnant to give birth to to be engaged in sin before the birth of the child. Maybe it's promiscuity. It might be alcohol use or drug abuse or or physical things that would affect a child. That connection does happen. Unfortunately, some children are born in situations where the mother's sin has caused some physical defect. That does happen. Jesus is not denying that that is ever the case. It is the case. We know it's the case. We know it can be the case. But he is denying that in this situation there is any connection whatsoever. Third, Jesus is not saying that sin is not the primary cause of all evils in the world. Ultimately, all evils and all suffering goes back in some way to Genesis 3 and the fall of man and Adam's sin and plunging all of us under death and destruction. So Jesus is not denying any of those. He is saying this. Neither this man nor his parents have done anything to single this person out for this specific infirmity. There is no connection whatsoever between his present suffering and the past sin of either this man or his parents. But, he says, instead, on the contrary, and it's a strong adversative in the Greek, but, on the contrary, underline it, it's in bold, instead of that, this is the case. This man was born blind so that the glory or the works of God might be displayed or manifested in him. Now that might not at first seem like a fair deal to you or a fair shake to you, but let's cash this out just a little bit, and I hope that by the time that we're done here, you're going to say, Okay, God has not done any injustice to the man in John 9. The disciples asked about the cause of the man's blindness. And Jesus is answering about the purpose behind the blindness. You understand the cause of something and the purpose of something are not necessarily in any way connected. The disciples have asked about the cause. What caused this? Jesus doesn't even answer the cause question. He instead points to the purpose of it. The cause is one thing, and Jesus is pointing to the purpose. The purpose of it is this, so that God's works might be manifested. The disciples have asked about a past condition, some past event that might have caused this, and Jesus is pointing to some future reality, and Jesus is saying the significance of this man and this event and this affliction and this infirmity has nothing to do with any past event. The significance of this man and his affliction is all to do with what God was about to do and what God would continue to do in this man. The purpose was not something in the past. The cause was not something in the past. The purpose was something that was yet to come. This man. These disciples thought that they understood the purpose behind it. What did they think the purpose of this man's affliction was? To punish him for his sin or to punish his parents for their sin. That's what they thought the purpose was. They thought they had the purpose nailed down. And because they thought or assumed that they knew what the purpose was, they got the cause of it all wrong. That's why they asked who sinned, this man or his parents. They thought that this was the justice of God being worked out. And instead, this man's affliction had nothing to do with justice being worked out. This man's affliction had everything to do with displaying God's compassion, his love and his grace, not his justice. His affliction was not a demonstration of God's justice at work. It was an opportunity for God to display his kindness and his compassion. And here's one of the ironies of John 9. At the beginning of the chapter, the disciples think that this man in his condition, this man is in his condition because of God's justice, that this man was being punished for his sin. And here's the irony. This man's condition would ultimately lead to him escaping all punishment for his sin because he would get saved and worship Christ at the end of this chapter. It has nothing to do with the justice of God whatsoever. They thought this was the man being punished. His blindness actually results in his salvation, not his damnation, not his punishment. He's not being afflicted for his sin. He's actually going to be delivered from his sin 
because of this blindness and because of what Jesus does through this blindness. And then Jesus said, this whole thing happened. This man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's interesting how Jesus refers to this miracle because what, what he's about to do, he just simply refers to it as work. That's why he says, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. We must be, while the time is short and while it's still day, I must be about the works that the Father has given me to do. He refers to this miracle as just the work of God. That's an interesting word, isn't it? That Jesus doesn't call it a miracle or a sign or a wonder. You know why that's interesting to me? You and I typically think of miracles as being massive displays of God's power. And all of the ordinary stuff that goes on every day are just sort of the commonplace, ordinary things, and we sort of breeze past those. Let me ask you this question. What is easier for God to do? Give sight to eyes that already exist, or to knit together eyes in the womb of a mother out of nothing, which is easier for God to do? They're both equal. That's the point. They're both works of God. I think it's much more, I would think it would be much more difficult to create eyes out of nothing than to give sight to eyes that already exist. But creating eyes out of nothing in the womb of the mother is so commonplace to us that we don't refer to that as a miracle, do we? No. But, th- but this catches our attention. Because we think that this is a big display of God's power. We got done with this. He was exhausted. Sweating in heaven. Tired out from this. This is one of those, this is one of those massive signs where the display, the power of God is on display. What about the birth of an ordinary baby? Is that not, is that not an incredible thing? That's marvelous, but it's common. So with things that are common, we typically don't attribute them as being marvelous. But they're equally marvelous. To Jesus, from God's perspective, it's all just work. Right? Creating the universe, making blind men see, is one more difficult than the other for God? You, you can't even speak of God and His power in terms of what is more difficult. Because there's no such thing as difficulty with God. No matter what the scale of the thing, parting the Red Sea, not more difficult than parting a bathtub. Right? They're, they're equally works to God. One doesn't take any more effort. He's no more exhausted after the one than the other. This was so that the works of God might be displayed or manifested in this man. So that we might see the works of God done through Christ performing this miracle. Jesus knew when he walked out of the temple. In fact, I would believe that he knew before he even got to this man. That this man was standing there. He saw them. He knows whom the Father has given to him. Right? He knows his sheep. He calls them by name. A personal relationship with them. Jesus knew this man was outside the temple gate. As he walked out of the temple, he saw this man. He had compassion on him. And he knew exactly what he was going to do. That this whole thing was going to be a living parable of what he had just taught in John 8. To demonstrate the blindness of the Pharisees and the spiritual darkness in which men live. And he healed this man in order to demonstrate the works of God. Now that is the specific answer that Jesus gives, dismissing all of those. I'm not talking about cause, we're talking about purpose. This has a purpose that's much bigger and grander than any of you disciples have possibly imagined up to this point. Now let's step back for a second and examine sort of the larger application of this and the theology behind verse 3, behind the answer of verse 3. Let's ask this, why was this man born blind? All right? We could answer that question by saying he was born blind because sin exists and sin sometimes does this and because that happens, um, God's heart breaks and I'm trying not to be blasphemous because this is some of the times the answers that you hear well-meaning, well-intentioned, but unfortunately very misguided Christians give to this, this question that God did this and, and he just couldn't do anything to stop it. This is how, you, how they talk, right? I mean, yeah, sin is horrible, and, and God, his heart breaks over this, but God didn't have anything to do with that. He wasn't, he wasn't responsible for that. He wasn't in charge of that. That's because sin exists, and you hear that happen when natural disasters strike, right? They get 
Christians on TV shows and on Fox News and all the stuff that we as evangelicals watch. And they interview these well-meaning Christians. And why did God allow this to happen? Well, this is a horrible thing. You know, God doesn't will any kind of natural disaster or evil. This, this just happened. It was outside of God's control. And we just do the best that we can. That's the type of answer that they give. Why was this man born blind? For the glory of God. Who made him blind? Let me ask the question a different way. Who gave you sight? Why do you see? You see because God made you to see. God created your eyes so that they can see. Is sight, is your sight not a blessing for which you should give God thanks? Now maybe you've never thanked Him for your ability to see. Okay, well that's your sin. You deal with that. But nonetheless, He is the one to be praised and thanked for the fact that you can see at all. If God is the one who is to be praised because we can see, then who is the one who is to be praised when we can't see? Who creates the eye? Psalm 94, verse 9, says, He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? Who made this man blind? Who gets the credit, not the blame, the credit for making this man blind? God. If God makes men blind, and he is or, uh, seeing, and he is to be praised for that, then why do we only praise God for making stuff that's perfect, like you and I? Right? We're physically perfect. Are you? Or we're all physically defect, defected? We are all physically defected, right? It's just a matter of degree. Some of you are more defected than I am. I am more defected than some of you. All of us have physical defects. God is the one who creates the eye, and God is the one who says, this one will see. And this one will not see. Is it hard for you to stomach? Exodus 4, verse 11. God said to Moses, The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You have a hard time stomaching that? Who is the one who makes men blind? God is the one who makes men blind. Our friend Justin Peters, and I called him and got permission to use him as a sermon illustration. Our friend Justin Peters was Justin born that way by accident with cerebral palsy? No mental handicaps at all, but physically handicapped. Was he born that way by accident? Was God overlooking something like that? Does God just stand at the end of the natural sort of assembly line and as, as it kicks out human beings, he says, well, this one's defective. I didn't have anything to do with that. Or did God make Justin just as he made Justin for his purposes? Justin would tell you, Justin himself would tell you, and you heard this from his own mouth when he was here and did the seminar. That apart from salvation, his cerebral palsy is the greatest gift that God has ever given to him. Now he's married, so I'm sure his cerebral palsy is now gift number three. So apart from his salvation and his wife, his cerebral palsy would be the greatest gift that God has ever given to him. Why was he made that way? Who made him that way? Was that an accident? It was by the sovereign appointment of God, so that the works of God would be displayed in Justin. In ways that the works of God are not displayed in you who can walk. Or in me. Who makes man seeing? God does. Who makes men blind? God does. If God were to strike me blind right now, He could do that, couldn't He? He could heal Justin in an instant, couldn't He? Justin could be walking by the end of the day. And God could make me blind by the end of the day. If it suits His sovereign and good purposes so that He could be glorified in me, He could take away my sight if that's what He deemed was best for me and most for His glory. He could do it. He's sovereign enough to do that. Now, right now, I'm healthy. 
I don't know of any illness. There could be an aneurysm in my brain that's, that's simmering and stewing that's going to go off later this afternoon during the football games. Or there might be a cancerous growth growing inside of me. But as far as I know, I am, okay, not, not peak fitness, but I'm healthy. I know of nothing that's perfectly wrong with me, or not, nothing that's wrong with me right now. That could change overnight. Who would cause that to change? Who would allow that to change? What's God doing? He makes men seen. He makes men blind. God is the one who has the authority to give His blessings and distribute His abilities to any of His creatures as He sees fit. Does not the King, the sovereign King of the universe, have the right to make from the same lump of humanity one man who can see and one man who is blind? Does He not have that right? Does God not have the right to distribute His blessings and His physical abilities however He sovereignly chooses? Since He is good and He is infinite in wisdom, does He not have the right in His providence to appoint to give a blessing to this person that He withholds from this person? He has that right. And if you have a hard time affirming that, listen, the degree to which you have a hard time affirming that is the degree to which you think the purpose of creation is your comfort and not His glory. It's the bottom line. He is the sovereign king. They are his blessings to distribute. And if you take umbrage with that, if you're upset with that, that is because you think that you would do a better job of disposing of God's bounties than he himself has done. It is because you think that the creator owes us as creatures his blessings. God owes me sight. Does God owe me sight? I'll tell you something, I have not used my eyes solely for the glory of God for my whole life. If He took my sight from me, He would be doing me no injustice. None whatsoever. If He robbed me of every blessing I have ever enjoyed, He would be doing me no injustice whatsoever. He can give me blessings. He can take away blessings. That is His sovereign right. Because He is the sovereign King. He is the potter. We are the clay. And we need to keep that straight. So this man, the man born blind... He himself was created that way by God for his pleasure. Ultimately, the question, why did God do this? The answer to that question is the same answer to every why question that you and I could ever possibly ask. It is for the glory of God. That's why all things exist, for the glory of God. Every year for Awana, two or three times a year, I have the chance to do Ask the Pastor Night. And probably at least twice a year, I get asked this question, some variation of this question. If God knew that the devil was going to fall, why did he create the devil? If God knew that man would fail the test, why did he put the tree there and put a prohibition? God could have created a creation in which there was no tree of good and evil, right? Knowledge of good and evil. He could have done that. When the serpent showed up, God could have showed up and said, Eve, come over here. I need to talk with, to distract her away from the serpent, but he didn't do that. Ultimately, why did God make a creation put man in it, capable of sinning, put the tree there, put down the law, and then allow the serpent there, create the devil in the first place, withhold grace from the devil so that the devil would fall, and put the, and allow the devil to come into the garden. God could have created a garden in which Satan couldn't enter. He could have done all of that. Why did God do all of that knowing that Adam would sin, that he would fall, and that all of this death and destruction would come upon his race? Why would God do that? The answer to that question, I'm always glad to tell the TNTers this. The answer to that question is always the same. God did it for His glory. You say, how is God glorified in evil? Because God glorifies Himself in evil by demonstrating His attributes and His plan and His providence in ways that without evil it would have been impossible for Him to demonstrate those attributes. Like God's justice. God demonstrates His justice by judging people, but if there was nothing ever to judge, no sin, no rebellion, 
How would God demonstrate his justice to creation? How would God demonstrate kindness to creation without people who didn't deserve that kindness? How would God demonstrate his redemption and his forgiveness and his grace and his compassion without a world and a creation in which those attributes can be magnified and glorified? How would God demonstrate his providence and his wisdom without ultimately triumphing over evil in his creation? And that's what he's going to do. So that all of this creation and God's ultimate triumph over it and even the working out of good from all of the bad things is for his glory. This whole thing, this this whole creation is a, is a stage upon which God is demonstrating his attributes. And you say, is it fair, though, that this man who was born blind should suffer all those years in darkness just so God could display His glory? Is that right? That this man should suffer with this affliction just so God could display His glory? Is that not selfish of God? Is it not self-centered and egotistical of God to do something like that? How can you worship a God who would allow this man to suffer just so He could glorify Himself? Let me answer it this way. If God is the most glorious person in all of the universe, and if His attributes are themselves the most beautiful, the most magnificent, and the most perfect of things, if He is the highest being, then what ultimately is the greatest good for us? It is to be able to see those attributes. And the greatest thing that God could do would be to display His glory for the angels, for the redeemed saints, and for everybody so that everybody would be able to see those attributes and God is glorified in them. So yes, it is worth it. Unless your view of God's glory is that it is just minuscule and you can take it or leave it. If that's your view of God's glory, then no, the man born blind, it was a horrible exchange. Right? All that affliction, just so God could display His grace, just so God could display His compassion, just so God could display His glory, How egotistical. If that's your view of God, then that's not a fair exchange. But if your view of God is this, that His nature and His character are so magnificent that the best thing is for us to be able to look upon His glory and to see Him and to be transformed by Him and to know Him as He is and to see Him in all of His manifold wisdom and beauty, if that is the best and the highest thing for His creation, then no amount of suffering, sorry, then all amount of suffering is worth it. No suffering is wasted because God will ultimately bring good and His glory out of every act of suffering and every affliction and every infirmity in some way. You may may not be able to see that now. You may not be able to tell it in this life. But listen, just because you cannot see the brush strokes of divine providence does not mean that God, the master painter, is not brushing out the strokes of divine providence. It might be just because you are just a little too ignorant to see it. Or I'm just a little too ignorant to see it. Or maybe our eyes are blinded to it. Or maybe the master painter does not want us to see those strokes just yet. But we have this confidence that every bit of evil and every bit of affliction is by either God God causes things to happen, calamities, destruction, cancer, disease, sickness, death, those things. God can cause those or God allows things to happen because God uses sin sinlessly. Without being the cause of sin, without sinning himself, he allows sin and he uses it to work out his purposes for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. Now let's make this personal. That's the theology behind it. Now let's make it personal. Why is it that God gives to NFL players an ability that I can only hope for someday? And he doesn't give that to me. Right? I can I catch a ball? I can catch a ball, but I can't do I can't do an one one hundredth of what the worst receiver in the NFL can do. I'm not fast. Why does God give 
uh, preaching gifts to some men that I can only hope to have, that I'll never have. The ability to preach in ways that I will never be able to. Why does God give intellectual powers to some men that... Seriously. I will never have that. Never have that ability. Sometimes it's just quick and I stand, I, I sit and I marvel. Why does God do that? Why does God withhold those blessings from me? Why does God make some men infertile, some men handicapped, blind, deaf, mute, mentally retarded, diagnosed with terminal illness, born with a condition that they will live with for the rest of their life? Why does God make some women barren and childless or allow women to have miscarriages or allow us to get into the situations that we do? Why does God allow those things to happen? Why does God withhold certain blessings from us? And why does He give certain blessings to some? The answer to that question is because of His glory. God does this for His own glory. He has His purposes in it. Now the question is this, can you trust Him in that? That's the issue you have to answer. Can I trust that God is good and that because He is good, He is infinite in wisdom and that He has ordered my life as it is by His providence for His purposes and that someday the writer of this whole story will make it plain? Can I trust Him? Can I believe this to be true of Him? And can I submit myself to His purposes and acknowledge that He is the giver of every blessing? And if He so wills, He can withhold those blessings from me for whatever reason, because He is not obligated to give me any blessings. And if He were to take every blessing away from me, He would be doing me no injustice. Matthew Henry, commentating on, commenting on John 9, says this, The sinfulness of the whole race of mankind does indeed justify God in all the miseries of human life. Do you hear that? The sinfulness of the whole race of mankind justifies God in all the miseries of all of mankind. So that those who have the least share of those miseries must say that God is kind. You don't enjoy a lot of miseries, then you have to acknowledge that God is kind. And those who have the largest share must not say that He is unjust. But many are made much more miserable than others in this life who are not all that more sinful. End quote. All of us are sharers in misery of some sort. All of us have afflictions and infirmities of some sort. All of us have had some common grace blessing withheld for us or had some tragedy strike. And if you don't think you've ever had a tragedy strike or something bad happen to you, just wait, your turn is coming. It's going to come. And I'm telling you this, you need to get this theology nailed down in your mind before tragedy strikes and not after tragedy strikes. You learn this lesson beforehand. That God is sovereign. And it's good. And it's gracious. And by His providence, He is ordering these things. And when we learn that and we get that down, then we recognize, when I look at my sin, can I ever say that whatever happens to me, that God has been unjust or He has done me wrong? I can never say that. I never say that. What do I deserve? In view of my sins, God could never do me wrong. He has given me life. On top of that, He's given me salvation. All the blessings that I enjoy, listen, one blessing, even one, one blessing is infinitely more than you and I deserve. That's it. Infinitely more than you and I deserve. God is not unjust. Now you say, well, this man was created blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And he was healed of his blindness. So in his case, it was worth it. But in my case, I haven't been healed. Or I haven't had my situation undone. 
Do you think that the only way that God is ever, ever able to display His grace and His works is if He heals somebody of an infirmity? Is that your view of God? That the only way His grace can be put on display is if you're healed from that? Do you think that God's glory has been manifested in Justin Peters and what God has done through him? I will tell you this. God has displayed His grace in Justin Peters in in ways that He could never do in me because I can walk. So in that situation, my abilities are my handicap. Because Justin Peters knows a part of God and God in a way that I have never learned. I've never learned it. Because I've never suffered through the affliction that he has gone through. And anybody who has gone through an affliction or a difficult, an affliction or a difficult time knows God and learns God in ways that the rest of us are not privy to. God has manifested not just, God's glory is manifested not just in healing somebody, but in also giving them grace to live with this and in the people who serve them and the people who minister and the encouragement that that person who is under affliction can be to other people and what they learn in that and what other people see in that. The, the manifold wisdom and grace of God is on display when people suffer affliction in more ways than just if they're healed. In this man's case, he was healed. So in this man's case, it was worth it. In everybody's case, it is worth it because all affliction ultimately is for the glory of God. And in all affliction and every bit of suffering, none of it's wasted. God is glorified and his grace is manifested. Spurgeon said, all our infirmities, whatever they are, are just opportunities for God to display his gracious work in us. Every infirmity is the opportunity for God to display his gracious work in us. So here's here's one thing we learned from the man born blind. When tragedy strikes or affliction comes or an infirmity happens or something happens to us, we don't ask the question, what have I done to deserve this? I know what I've done to deserve it. If it was truly the outworking of what I deserve, that question is answered. I have, I want to get into my sin. The question really is, how can I glorify God in it? And when tragedy strikes somebody else, we don't sit down with them and say, well, you need to examine your heart and see why God might have brought this into your life. And obviously because of some sin or because of something you've done and you've stepped out of God's favor, you're no longer blessable. God owes you his blessings. And if you just believe in him, he'll give you your favor. That's never what you say to somebody. You always sit down and ask, Lord, for whatever reason, I want you to teach me in this. I don't want this to be wasted. And so give me the grace to handle this in a way that honors and glorifies you so that you might be magnified in me, whether by life or by death or whatever happens that the power of Christ may dwell in me and that other people may see it. Glorify yourself through this. And if God does that, then it's worth it. It's always worth it. Even if you can't see the brush strokes of providence in this life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word and what an encouragement it is to us. You are, you are glorious, you are infinite, and we can never fully understand your ways. So much of what you work out in our lives and in creation is is the working of your providence, and it is mysterious grace to us. We know that in eternity we will see your handiwork, and we will say that it is well with our soul what you have done. We will be able to always and for eternity affirm that you have never done us any injustice. You have never done any creature injustice. But in the outworking of your grace and in your providence, God, you have so ordered our lot and our lives in a way that is for your glory. And we thank you that we have that to hope in, that no matter what it is that we suffer with no matter what affliction you bring and we know that you will be glorified through it and we thank you that you do not waste anything in our lives that we can trust you that we can rest in your goodness we thank you for these things and pray that you would confirm these truths to our hearts and help us to enjoy the fellowship and uh, that we have one with another the service that we make with one another and lord may you be glorified through us as a church and through us as individuals as we rest in your sovereignty and your providence in christ's name amen 
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.